the five guiding principles of our national life. This is Indonesia In-Depth. I'm Sean Corrigan. And I'm Tanita. I'm Arif Budiman. On this episode, we will answer some of our listeners' questions with Arif, my colleague at Lexico Indonesia, which produces this podcast. We've been getting a lot of feedback, right. so mm-hmm. let's break some of them down in this episode. Okay. We won't do them all, but we'll we'll get to all of them eventually. Mm-hmm. But let's break them down one by one, and let's, let's get right into it. All right. from Australia asks, the 2019 presidential campaign has officially started since September 23rd this year. But compared to the 2014 election season, I don't see as much happening now, especially since this year Jokowi is running for a second term Hmm. and is on a rematch with Prabowo Subianto in the election in April next year. The media seems to be relatively quiet on the campaign trails, the priority programs, the dynamics, and all of those other relevant information from the general election. So the question is, do you agree with this? And how are each of the candidates managing their campaign teams? Well, that's an interesting question from one of our listeners uh, outside Indonesia. And definitely that the listeners keep eyeing on on Indonesia's development. But... Uh, as Sean said, that um, because this is uh, this is a rematch, so currently it's still relatively quiet, uh, and there's also a new ruling on the National Election Commission that the candidates and their campaign team they cannot organize a big mass campaign. They can only organize a big mass campaign three weeks before the silent period. So it will be around three weeks until a month before the April 17th. They have a very, very tight schedule to run the uh, mass campaign. But in previous years, it wasn't no. so. The, the moment they start the uh, campaign uh, season, where, where it is now, they already started on this September 23rd, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, between 23rd or 25th. Mm-hmm. So by the time of that uh, date, up until a week before the election, before the what they call it here as the silent uh, uh, a week, uh, so a like, week a, a, the like a cooling down, like a cooling down after a long campaign season. Uh, but now everything's just quiet, and then very interesting why KPU or the National Election Commissions have this new ruling that the big mass campaign only can be organized three weeks before the silent. And week. what's the reasoning behind that? Do you know? Uh, I think we need to look more on that. The, and, and one thing that I know that the KPU is assuming that you know many Indonesians now they're already what they what so called as the internet literacy is quite high, and KPU is trying to minimize the potential conflict on the ground. So they are endorsing each of the campaign teams from each of the candidates to use more of a online activities other than uh, big mass campaign rallies. Yeah, and uh, I think it is also uh, interesting to see how each of the national campaign team do their work. And I think it, it will be very interesting if you have special or one particular episode to discuss about that. And I think we can also 
include you know what what's inside in the in that'd the, be good the yeah. Team, yeah yeah so yeah. we should do a whole episode yeah so maybe just one episode on yeah. Widodo's campaign team mm-hmm. maybe another episode on Prabowo's, Prabowo's campaign team campaign yeah. team yeah exactly I would be, I'll be I'll be glad to uh, share yeah, let's uh, do some that of then, the information yeah. on each of the campaign teams and what happened I mean what's the, dam- the dynamics inside of the just to answer the listeners question mm-hmm. you know about how these candidates are managing their campaign team mm-hmm. can you just maybe shed some light just a little bit briefly mm-hmm. uh, about you know how are they managing is it, is it how many people there are is it the same team for example that right. joke we had in 2014 is a different uh, one? just yeah. maybe touch a bit okay um, so this is very interesting because from Pajoko's campaign team the, his team consists of more than 5,000 people oh that's it <laughs> from the from the national campaign team it's like for 5200 wow. something or 5700 something so that's now what that's about, now what about in, 2014 in, in, in 2014 they didn't have that much of numbers and this is also very interested to for for us to to have a special episode on mm-hmm. uh, how each candidate managed their national campaign team because for for Jokowi the question would be the effectiveness of the national campaign team so the team that consists of more than 5000 personnel and also built by his coalition, his political party's endorsers, um, it will raise the question whether Jokowi can manage his team effectively. And we should also remember that there's one polling that made by Kumparan the News. It's an online-based uh, media. And it's pretty much independent compared to other uh, current polling organizations. It says that there's a trend that Jokowi is leaning towards decreasing yeah, compared to is his being his popularity or his uh, his his uh, popul- popularity and electability is two different things. And what is interesting from this Kumparan news is that the electability of Pajako is decreasing a bit. So mm-hmm. let's see further. Again, the effectiveness of the team is being questioned. So having a a team of five thousand is impressive, but it doesn't equate to oh no no exactly effective yes and a team mm-hmm. that es- can perform espe- especially if those five thousand people. Uh, consist of members that coming from political parties and most of them is uh, they are also legislative candidates so they kind of like you know they're, they're splitting their focus mm-hmm. e- either they want to win them secure their seats for parliament and also helping Pajokowi yeah. as presidential because we can see from from each of provinces in Indonesia that each province has their own unique political dynamics right and some of the legislative candidates, they are thinking that putting or campaigning for Pajokowi, it won't give positive impact to his or her campaign mm-hmm. in order to, to win the legislative seats in each levels of uh, legislative, national level, provincial level, and kabupaten kota or the city level. So again, numbers of campaign formal formal numbers of campaign doesn't have to be the same with the productivity of the team as for pa Prabowo's side uh, his national campaign team is not as big as pa jokowi and then we can see that from the structure itself from the structure of pa Prabowo's team in my opinion is way more streamlined into each of the function of the campaign itself so the structure itself reflects on how a campaign needs to be done mm-hmm. compared to Pajokowi. Lots of members, but there's only 11 directorates under Pajokowi's campaign team and 
I think we can uh, respond further to uh, one of our listeners' questions by having a special, again, special mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, maybe Prabowo's campaign. He has, you know, he was a general in the Indonesian military. Maybe a more structured, streamlined. Probably could be a more effective campaign. Probably. And they ran a pretty effective campaign in 2014. In 2014, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we we can we can uh, and we should remember that uh, the 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 votes gap between Pak Prabowo and Pak Jokowi back in 2014 is only eight million. It's only eight, eight million. It's only eight million, and now with having Maruf Amin as the VP candidate for Jokowi and then Pak Sandiaga Uno for VP candidate for Prabowo, and that might have a great impact mm-hmm. on the on the 2019 election. So if we see many polling surveys in Indonesia stated that Pak Jokowi is still above 50 percent, we need to be very cautious, you know, on 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 this uh, survey results. I have a question, and this might sound very layman. Mm-hmm. So, has it always been like that in general elections, where the legislative candidates that belongs to parties that are within a coalition endorsing certain candidates has to also join the campaign team and support them fully, or is it just usually voluntary? And this year is just special. No, well, that's the expectation from the from the candidate. So they are yeah. fighting to have the endorsement from political parties, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say there there will be. Usually, in, in, in each presidential election, post-Suharto, uh, of course, uh, there are two levels of battlefield here for each of the presidential candidates. First is to get political parties endorsement. And then to get those political parties or his or her coalition to be consistent in supporting him or her. So putting political parties in line with the candidate as endorsers is one thing. To be able to fulfill the administrative requirements to be able to run as candidate. But then, will the members of the political parties or the legit or the legislative candidates can also be consistent in supporting their own party's candidate that they already endorse at the first place? Mm-hmm. So because each of the province and each of the electorate area has different dynamics. For example, uh, in South Sumatra, Golkar party is part of Jokowi's coalition, part of mm-hmm. Jokowi's uh, endorser in the 2019 election. But in certain areas of South Sumatra, Jokowi is not popular at all, mm. at all. Uh, so the legislative candidates from Golkar in several electoral areas in South Sumatra, they don't want to put Pak Jokowi's well, photo yeah. in their flyers, in their billboards, yeah. in their. They don't want to put it on the on their on their campaign tools. Materials, exactly, yeah. exactly, and so. So um, this is a big problem for each of the candidates, actually. Mm-hmm. For example, as well, uh, Prabowo. Will Democrat Party, for example, put Prabowo's face in their campaign materials? They're probably leaning to put uh, SBY's uh, photos. So with that expectation, mm. it's natural that these legislative candidates will always have to multitask yes. mm-hmm. each election. They have to multitask and the, 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 again, the big problem is would they consistent with, pot- mm-hmm. with, uh, with their political party decision to endorse one of the candidates. Okay. So, uh, for example, yeah, Pak Jokowi was endorsed by how many parties? So like seven existing parties and then two or three new political parties. So numbers would not guarantee at all. Mm-hmm. And coming back to 2014 election, the gap is only eight million. So in my perspective, especially for Pajokovic's campaign team, they need to be really cautious mm-hmm. on putting an effective work on making Jokowi win.
Okay, let's move to the next question. A listener based in Singapore says there are still a couple more sessions for Parliament to deliberate and issue outstanding bills. But with the campaign season going on, will the Indonesian Parliament remain active and productive in deliberating bills after, say, the April election? So as far as my understanding is, this current house will have maybe three more sessions, and the last session will be in end of September. End of September, yeah. or um, mid of September. So how do you see this next three sessions with their productivity? Mm-hmm. They've had very low productivity rating. How do you see things happening in Parliament in the next three sessions? Well, active is one thing. Productive is another t- another thing. That's the biggest. That's true. That is the biggest challenge for uh, the Parliament uh, for the current Parliament, because most of them. Not most of them. All of them. They are running again for the office, right? That's for the their five yearly cycle. For the next three sessions, DPR will still active, uh, even though uh, most of them are running again for election, uh, and also they they're they're also busy for the presidential uh, election as well. As you know, that the the parliamentary election and the presidential election will will take the same day simultaneous uh, election between legislative and executive, which is the presidential uh, election. So constitutional-wise, constitutional they, they, they still under obligation to serve the, to serve the parliament. Uh, but what is interesting in the, parl- uh, on, in, in the parliament under election season is that they will deliberate, they will really carefully pick Bills that is strategic for their campaign agenda. Mm-hmm. So something they could use. Yes. Yeah. For example, there is something that really surprising for many experts, political scholars. That last week, if I'm not mistaken, we need to cross check again. All of a sudden, yeah, we didn't know where this bill came from originally, but the DPR just passed a draft and now already passed to become a bill to be deliberated and eventually will become the law, right? It was a draft on the bill on pesantren. That is amazing. To be honest with you, as a parliament observer, a close uh, watcher of parliament, close watcher of the parliament, I'm really surprised. So, so why they brought this draft into a bill? So this is a, a bill on madrasas. Yeah, a bill on Islamic schools. This is very important because they trying to build credits so that they can sell this to their uh, voters. It, was it a, a bill initiated by parliament? It, it is initiated by the parliament, uh, but the process is, we, we never heard of the process. So, so it sort of came it, out of it nowhere. Was, it was really say. slow, it was really slow. So was it, it, it doesn't mean that it comes from nowhere. I mean, it, there's a process, but the but process is, it was really behind closed doors. You know? And all of a sudden, last week, DPR or Parliament plenary meeting, the DPR brought this to the plenary, and then they passed the draft and then become a bill. So it's still a bill now. It hasn't, it's hasn't been passed. Yeah. And are there any important takeaways? Uh, so it means that uh, all bills that we expect to be postponed because of the election schedule, tight election schedule, uh, now we need to be really cautious that they might pass bills that really concerns business because the bill filled with so many nationalistic economic economic nationalistic agendas and we don't know uh, behind closed doors they they deliberated it and then all of a sudden before april 2000 
2019, could be on January or February 2019, the bill can become a law. Because, you know, it, like for example, for oil and gas bill or mining, or mining bill, they can come all of a sudden, you know, and say that we're going to pass this bill because this is like pro-nationalistic economic agenda, so on and so forth, and they try to sell it to the electoral, to the voters, mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, you know, certain parties are pro-nationalistic uh, economy. So the business community uh, should be keeping a close eye on what's happening yes. in Parliament, although Parliament sometimes has a, a poor track record in yeah. getting bills mm -hmm. progressing. Right. There could be some surprises in the next three yes. sessions and, yes. and could surprise some right. other people, yeah. yeah. So uh, under the uh, campaign season, things can become really goes uh, on the opposite direction. Yeah? Either they become really slow yeah. or all of a sudden they can become really productive because so many, because they handpicks many bills that is uh, that can boost their popularity in among voters that you know mm -hmm. one or two or three bills is really boosting nationalistic economy. Yeah, so the, the election can influence the pace of some bills but also the yes. selection of some yes. bills. Yeah. Make, make, making things complicated is easy. Economic reform takes time. We are here for you. Let's move on to the third question now. It's a question from one of our listeners from Washington, D.C. So under the current General Election Commission regulation, number 22 of 2018, it regulates that there is a maximum limit of candidates if they have already been in office either as a president or vice president for two terms, they cannot run uh, any more campaigns. Mm -hmm. So that means if re-elected next year, Jokowi will not be able to run again in 2024. Mm -hmm. And assuming Prabowo still has the vigor and interest and runs uh, in 2024 and got elected, he's going to be pretty much um, senior by then. So in your opinion, what's next for Indonesia after these two in my opinion, big figures. Are there new political figures and potential leaders uh, for 2024? Really interesting question. That, um, yeah, this is going to be the final battleground for uh, senior political figures. Yeah? Uh, for uh, definitely for Jokowi, if he's re-elected, Prabowo uh, by 2020, he will be. Um, well, we cannot compare it to Mahathir Muhammad from Malaysia. He, he is 90 or something <laughs> and Megawati for example the chairwoman of PDIP she's already also senior so this is also SBY yeah? so uh, I would say that uh, 2019 is going to be the last chapter for Indonesian senior political figures and by 2024 the battle will be much more interesting because there will be many uh, young Indonesian political uh, figures and in 2024, it's going to be the festival of, of young uh, politicians. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's maybe get into some of the names of the people that you see will be coming up by, say, 2024. Uh, yeah, we have, I mean, Indonesia have many popular, young popular uh, leaders yeah, or politicians now, and most of them, they already succeeded to become uh, governors in many provinces in Indonesia. Let's say, Ridwan Kamil, uh, governor of West Java, he just got elected. Mm -hmm. And he's 
he's really smart on you know on on picking issues that is close mm -hmm. to Jakarta area, other than to talk issues that is mm -hmm. far away from Jakarta to the is safe to the problems or so societal problems development problems in uh, eastern part of West Java. Mm -hmm. He's coming closer to. City of Bekasi, for example, on the Kalimalang River, for example. And so that's and a really smart move. And why is he? Can you explain a little bit of why is he because, doing that? Because issues that close to Jakarta will create uh, a national spotlight for him. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the the closer to Jakarta, um, all, all national media will put eye on him. But if he handpick issues that is far from Jakarta, then he won't get the national spotlight. So he's very smart on his first days of his governorship. And then the second one is we can see uh, Ganjar, uh, mm -hmm. governor of uh, Central, Central Java, Java. Yeah. Ganjar Pranowo. So he's one of the, uh, well, if you look at his hair, he's not that young, but he's actually still young, still relatively young. And uh, he definitely will be there on the 2024 election stage. Yeah. And there's um, uh, Emil Dardak, the vice mm. uh, governor of East Java. He's born in 1982 or 84, if I'm not mistaken. And he's now elected uh, together with Ibu Hofifa as governor and vice governor of East mm. Java, the second most populous uh, province in Indonesia. So you can imagine Mas Emil or Emil, yeah, uh, that he will be the next raising star in 2024. And then we we see um, Yani Wahid, the, the daughter of uh, late Gosdur, uh, and then TGB, former governor of West Nusa Tenggara. That's his uh, nickname, but it's Zainu Majdi. Right? Zainu Majdi, the, yes. And he was the former governor of West Nusa Tenggara. And you interviewed him during our first episodes of our podcast. Yes, that was in May. Yeah, it was yes, a great uh, episode. episode, and listeners should, should revisit that. And I think... Mm -hmm. TGB or Zainal Majdi, mm -hmm. I think will be a name that listeners will be familiar with in 2019. I think he'll be still around and still a rising star. Yeah, yeah. We can still, uh, in 2024, we probably will see uh, Romi, the chairman of uh, PPP party, mm -hmm. and then Muhaimin, the current chairman of PKB. Uh, and also, don't forget this Agusi Doyono. I was just uh, about to ask and that. And his yeah. younger brother. <laughs> All right. Combo. Uh -huh. So, yeah, it's a very interesting question from uh, one, one of our listeners. And uh, I think we should make another episode, yeah, specifically talking about track record uh, on each of the potential young leaders in 2024. So we'll do an episode, maybe break down yep. who mm -hmm. they are, their backgrounds, mm -hmm. and what, what their links mm -hmm. and connections are to some mm -hmm. of the parties. And, yeah, that would and, be really uh, interesting. Yeah, whether maybe the circles of influence are and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, it's a good idea. Um, how about Megawati's youngest daughter, Buan Maharini? Do you think she's interested in this? As part of the heir of the Sukarno family, uh, definitely, uh, oh, that's, that's one name I missed. But uh, since you mentioned about uh, Megawati's daughter, uh, well, Puan is definitely one of the you know, person to be watched uh, for 2024. But if you talk about her, then we have to talk about her older brother, which is Prananda. Mm -hmm. So from, from Megawati's family, at least they have two uh, raising stars. There's Puan and there's uh, uh, Prananda. Prananda is Ibu Megawati's second child, uh, second son. From those names, less woman. 
rise as the next uh, Indonesian political uh, leaders. So this is, in, in my perspective, this is quite concerning. Does it mean that less opportunity? Why less women appear more totally? So the, you're saying the rising stars, there's less women that are part of that list. Yes. Not just your list, but sort of the other list sort that of, we've seen sort of and a, people sort of are saying. general public knowledge on that. Well, we have, uh, Indonesia have also Risma, the uh, Surabaya mayor, yep. um, second largest city in Indonesia. But does she included as young mm -hmm. political leader by 2024? I don't think mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. So less women, and that's, that will be uh, really interesting to, to discuss. Yeah, the mayor of Surabaya, as you mentioned, Ibu Risma, mm -hmm. she's fantastic. Uh, you know she's her well, I've met oh her. Yeah. We both uh, met with her. Yeah, we both mm -hmm. met with her. And uh, she's a true, in my opinion, a true reformer. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, when Jokowi was governor of Jakarta and Ahok was the deputy governor, they were famous for the, especially Jokowi was famous for the so-called Blue Sukan, which is sort of the impromptu site visits that the leader would make. But Ibu Risma in Surabaya has been doing that for a long, long time as mayor, even before she was mayor. Mm -hmm. And that's her trademark, actually not Jokowi's or Ahok's. And, right, and right. they learned a lot from them. And my understanding is that Jakarta actually sent teams of people to Surabaya mm -hmm. to learn from her about the e-tendering mm -hmm. and other uh, transparency programs. Mm -hmm. So she's great and let's see what happens with her going forward. This is her second term as mayor of Surabaya and what will happen in she's, 2024. Yeah, she's not really into politics. Mm. She's straightforward, wants to be the leader of the people and mm. do well for the people. So we'll see what happens with her. But she, yeah, she's fantastic. And I think our listeners should really look into some of the programs that she's developed and, and had success with. Talking about uh, women in politics, women in Indonesian politics, let's let's include Sri Mulyani, uh, the Minister of Finance. Yeah, how can you forget Sri uh, Mulyani from your list? Again, the, the the young political figure. Well, well, I don't know either. Is Sri Mulyani still young in 2024? Yeah, so Sri Mulyani now is around what 56, so another five and, years. And by 2024, she'll be 61. <laughs> Our last question comes from a listener in Jakarta, and the question is, what is Jokowi's or Prabowo's agenda or their policy plans for a 2019-2024 term? We don't hear enough about their programs, the listener asks. Yeah, Maybe add some comment to that? Yeah, because again, because the slow start of the campaign so that pu the public cannot hear much about their programs, uh, their priorities, vision and mission. Uh, uh, but clearly, it's they have programs and on uh, published in each of their websites, each of the national campaign team websites. And if we see uh, from the previous uh, election, from 2014 election, Jokowi has way more structured uh, programs, way more targeted, very sectoral, very targeted programs. But now he and uh, the VP candidate only have programs that consist only like 30, 34, 35 pages. And all macro, all in generals, all like continuing, uh, keep on doing this, keep on continuing that. So there's less uh, is it, I mean, is it specific? Less innovation. So, Pajokowi, 
uh, based on the written uh, programs that is published in, the, in their website, it's not that excited, you know. And in contrast from Pajakowi, Paprabowo have a very vigorous and powerful uh, agenda. He and well, he and his team definitely pinpoint policies until mentioning particular laws. Regulations. So very detailed. It's very detailed. Is it different than twenty four than his in twenty fourteen? Compared to two thousand fourteen, Jokowi is very detailed. He is aiming for you know amending this law, amending that regulations, blah blah blah. So it's very sharp, very uh, micro targeting, so that people or voters or or I would say scholars, yeah, uh, university students, for example, they are really excited, you know, to see. Uh, uh, to watch, uh, to observe, to to give give their analysis, and and thus they give, they have hopes towards Pajakowi, because by two thousand fourteen, when they read the uh, Pajakowi's uh, agenda, they know that Pajakowi know what to do, you know, and in contrary now, Pajakowi's program is really simple. It keeps it keeps saying most of the words on the program keep saying. That's uh, continuing this. Do you think that's just natural because he's an incumbent candidate? So if he says that you know he wants to change this and that, he's also implying that his current policies are not working well. Uh, yeah, to- I totally agree. But that's the nature of an incumbent continuing mm-hmm. uh, what's yeah. already achieved. For example, um, continuing to develop infrastructures. For example, if you have thirty thousand kilometers new roads in Papua. What will you do with that? Because Papua province population is really small. And what do you expect? What is your plan? What is the next? Is, is it that Papua going to be the next uh, center of growth mm-hmm. in the eastern part of Indonesia? If that's the plan, so it's, it's just not there on the program. Okay. It's missing. As for 2014, Pajokoi gave us, give the vo- Indonesian voters really big new hope right for a better indonesia etc and etc etc but now the excitement of the program of his vision is not as big as 2014 so they need to elaborate more on the achievements of the of the government or of pajakoi and then they need to put new hope you know the the, the second chapter of of pajakoi's you know yeah. that's been missing all of this time not been missing all of this time, but been missing in the campaign. So that sums up some of our questions from our listeners. We will get to the other questions in future episodes. So thank you for listening, and we hope you found this helpful. Let us know. You can send your mm-hmm. suggestions criticism or comments to info at indonesiaindepth.com. That's one word, Indonesia In Depth. And don't forget, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and also on Amazon Alexa. You can just say, Alexa, play Indonesia In Depth podcast. Welcome to Indonesia and In Alexa Depth. Alexa will start playing. I just want to jump in on that. If you also have any ideas on topics or issues that you'd like us to talk and discuss on, do drop a message and email. 
The Indonesia In-Depth podcast is produced by the team at Lexico Indonesia, a political risk advisory located in the heart of Jakarta. You can find Lexico Indonesia at lexicoindonesia.com.